Hello. Hello again, everyone. Thank you so much for being here, whether you're watching or listening. We're really grateful to have you as a part of our Empowering Equality podcast with Inclusive Workplace and Supply Council of Canada, or IWSCC, to keep it short. Uh, my name is Deidre Guy, and uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, then you'll see that we have ASL interpretation, and that is sponsored by RBC Royal Bank, who has helped uh, cover our costs for ASL for 2023, and supplied by Maple Communications Canada. We want to thank our producer, uh, Pod Supply, for all the great work that they do uh, in correcting all the mistakes that we make while we're recording. So our guest today is a graduate of Carleton University. He's held positions as business development manager for the Australian Trade Commission and, and in Washington, D.C. as a trade advisor and has held the office of Canada's procurement ombudsman since 2018, being recently appointed for a second five-year term. Thank you so much. Alex Eaglich, for being here today. We really appreciate it. Uh, it's good to see your face again. Yeah, thank you, Deidre. And we really appreciate all the support that you've given our office as well and promoting the message to your uh, listeners. So thank you. You're quite welcome. So tell us, uh, who is Alex and, and what do you do? Tell us a bit about yourself. So you're probably going to get more here than you bargained for. Uh -oh. um, but uh, how I answer this is in an incredibly personal way, just to give you a real sense of who I am. And I start by telling you a little bit about uh, my parents. Uh, so my mother studied human rights law in former Yugoslavia. Um, and so when she immigrated to Canada, her degree, unfortunately, wasn't recognized. Um, so when she decided she wanted to fundamentally help people, she was kind of left with this decision point as to how best to do it. So she decided to pursue a master's uh, in social work at Laurier University. Um, and when she did that, she actually got a job at the Ottawa Rehabilitation Center. And there she was working with people with disabilities, yeah. helping them find meaningful work, making sure that they could live independently. So the sad part of the story is she actually passed away when uh, I was a teenager, sure. uh, but she's been a powerful force in my life uh, throughout my life, for sure. Um, and then my dad, a uh, different person, but still kind of very impactful. So my dad has a PhD in engineering. He's a very okay. technically minded uh, person. He's a pipeline engineer, uh, but unfortunately he had a stroke in his 60s. So he was left partially paralyzed and he has aphasia. Uh, so for the last 17 years, he's been living with aphasia in a wheelchair. Um, and so it's really given me transparency in the number of barriers that continue to exist. Um, so trying not to get too emotional, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of a picture about where I come from. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of my background, as you mentioned, you know, I've worked in the United States. I work for the Australian government as well. I'm a lawyer by background, um, but I've really developed a strong sense of promoting fairness from my mother. Um, and a really strong sense of perseverance and fiscal responsibility for my father. Um, so they're really kind of the examples I've tried to live my life by. Uh, so I'm not saying I have any lived experience with disability, but I am saying that I care deeply about it. Um, and that's predominantly why, you know, this is so important to me. So, uh, yeah, so it sounds like disability has been a language in your home for most of your life between your mother and then your dad living with a, a disability. Um, so, yeah, and, and you know what the reality is? Most of us aren't going to get away without having a disability at some point in our lives. So you've got, you've got a bit of a head start on all of the, you know, the knowledge and, and, and also the, the concept of living with a disability and how successful and, and rewarding that can actually be. So, so now you're an ombudsman. Tell us what an ombudsman is. 
Yeah, absolutely. So unfortunately, the term procurement ombudsman, when taken together, requires some unpackaging. Because yeah. <laughs> um, it's not like, oh, of course, you're the procurement ombudsman. We know exactly. So when you're making small talk at kind of cocktail receptions, it's not something that people kind of run with. They kind of let the conversation end there. Uh, so hopefully what I can do is provide a little bit more information. So in the, my role as procurement ombudsman, I'm really a public official who acts as an impartial uh, body between the public and the government of Canada. Um, but in really basic terms, like I just try to solve people's problems when they contact us. So the first thing we do is we listen, we really try to appreciate the issues that they're experiencing, and then we try to solve those as effectively as possible. Um, so I actually have a government-wide mandate when it comes to procurement. So it's not just procurements done by Public Works and Government Services Canada. It can be procurements done by any of 90 departments and agencies. There are some uh, carve-outs to that mandate. So Crown Corporations, for example, those wouldn't be covered by my mandate. But predominantly, most departments and agencies that are, fall within the federal government all part of the mandate. So again, it's a pretty important role. And I understand and appreciate, you know, when you come to me, I have to do everything I can to make sure that I'm resolving those issues. So, so how sort of exactly does the procurement ombudsman support Canadians? Like, can you give us a sort of hypothetical or an example of, of a way that you have supported Canadians, and particularly within the procurement sector? Yeah. So one of the easiest ways is so for payment issues, right? So for example, if you're a supplier and you've delivered on a contract and you're awaiting payment and particularly those small and medium sized businesses, you know, those days of delay really matter. And sometimes, unfortunately, it's months of delay and you don't know where to turn because you've already gone to the parties that you're contracting with. And so you're kind of left bewildered as to what to do next. So when you contact the office, you know, we offer kind of an impartial voice. So we contact that department and agency and try to figure out what's going on, right? And it's a different voice. There isn't that fear of litigation when we're talking to someone. So we're able to have a more frank discussion. And typically that's where you see immediate action. So oftentimes I don't think suppliers um, appreciate how quickly things might happen when they contact our office. But sometimes, you know, if it's something that's just sitting on someone's desk that requires an approval, all of a sudden we contact those people and things happen magically and the supplier gets paid. So that's a very practical example, but there's, there's many others. Um, Obviously, we take education as an important part of our role as well, like demystifying the whole federal procurement system. Um, and one thing I also ask is, you know, you have to appreciate the perspectives of others involved in the transaction, right? So when we listen, we certainly take in the perspective of the supplier and the story they're telling us, but we also want them to understand and appreciate the perspectives of the other people involved, because I think that's helpful and that's the education piece. Um, and from my own background, I've played multiple roles in the procurement process and you're incentivized differently depending on what role you play within the process, right? And understanding what motivates the actions of the people you're talking to is really helpful in understanding how you should talk to them, right? So if you're a new supplier, you might not appreciate, hey, what, what's motivating the party I'm talking to to act or not act? And even just understanding that piece helps inform how you might want to communicate with them. That's a very good point, actually. So, so how does someone become a procurement ombudsman? What led you to this? 
<laughs> so that's a great question. So I actually worked at a crown corporation and the crown corporation uh, was being wound up. So essentially I was going to be out of a job, okay. right? And so I knew I had a window of time to find a new job and someone actually forwarded this opportunity to me. And it said it was an order and council appointment. Now, at the time, I really didn't appreciate what that meant. But as I kind of informed myself more and more, it meant, you know, you're appointed by uh, the governor general on the recommendation of a minister. So those are heavy words, uh, you know, in the word of, world of government. But uh, it didn't detract me from kind of throwing my hat in the ring. And so when I actually applied, a new process had been just established, right? So you actually had to submit a resume and you had to demonstrate how you met the merit criteria. So when I read the merit criteria, I thought, hey, like I actually meet all of these. Uh, so I'm going to take the effort and really spend time on this application. And so I did that. Um, and if I'm being truthful, all I wanted and expected was an interview. Yeah. Right. And so when I got the interview, I was pretty pleased and I felt like I went into it pretty relaxed and I was able to be myself. And as a result, I got a second interview and then there were multiple interviews after that. But it kind of culminated with a call from the minister. And it was this surreal moment in my life that I'll never forget where the minister congratulated me. So I'd never had, you know, an official at that level contact me directly. So just speaking to the minister was a big deal. And I wasn't really able to process the words, you know, to appropriately express my thanks for being uh, nominated for the role. But I mean, I appreciated the gravity and immediately kind of took to, okay, you know, now this is going to be my role for the next five years. So it's really important to like portray that vision effectively. So, you know, even though it was a lengthy process to, to ultimately get the job, I mean, when I got it, I immediately appreciated how important and significant it was to helping Canadian suppliers. So what would there be about the office of the procurement ombudsman that you wish more Canadians knew? Yeah, so it's a good question. And I think the real answer is I, I wish more Canadians knew we existed, right? Mm -hmm. We're a small office. Um, we're never going to reach all of the communities we should reach, um, but we try, right? And social media is certainly helping us in the sense that we're able to reach many more communities now by pushing out information. Uh, but still, um, opportunities like this, you know, don't always come around. So we want to talk to suppliers with disabilities. We want to talk uh, to veteran-owned businesses, you know, who are interested. Um, and we're not always sure how best to reach them. And so we really appreciate kind of the opportunity to tell you a little bit about our mandate. And maybe I'll backtrack a little bit and tell you a little bit about our legal mandate. And so our legal okay. mandate really is we get complaints from suppliers about specific contracts. And it can be either about the award process or the administration of the contract. Now, there's certain dollar values associated on when we can actually launch a review or not, uh, but we have complementary jurisdiction with the Canadian International Trade Tribunal. So what that means is even if our office isn't the right office for your complaint, we have a memorandum of understanding with the Canadian International Trade Tribunal to make sure that your complaint gets heard. Now, one of the big things is timing, right? So you have to do that immediately. So once you have a concern, you know, reach out to our office or reach out to the Canadian International Trade Tribunal if you're not sure if we can help you. The worst thing that happens is we tell you, you know, it's not ripe yet for us to look into it, but please keep in touch. Um, and so that makes sure that you're not time barred from us doing anything under our formal mandate. 
Um, informally, we'll always try to help you, even if you are time barred, but formally in terms of our legislation, uh, timing matters. So for us, it's traditionally 30 days after the contract is awarded. Um, and then in contract administration, again, it's 30 days from notification of the issue arising. Another thing that, okay. go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, well, in my mind, 30 days uh, is not a lot right. um, in the, to even recognize that you have a circumstance. So it's good to know that even unofficially, you can provide some support to if people miss the deadline. Well, and timing is everything. That's the thing, right? Is at a certain point, you're just frustrated, right? And you kind of ruminate in that frustration. And that's the, the problem is it's when does that frustration turn into action? And if it doesn't happen relatively quickly, then, you know, some of the offerings that are available in terms of what we can do for you are, are limited just because of the timing. So that's one of the things is the worst thing that happens is we tell you not yet, right? And, and that's, I think, still a good news story. Another thing I wanted to highlight is we do systemic reviews. So as opposed to one specific contract, it might be your experiences with many contracts. And here's where, you know, we really need to hear from you to better understand exactly what issues you're encountering, because we don't always know where to look, right? And so we collect data year over year and we classify it based on category. So for example, um, I'm sure we're going to get into what type of issues uh, suppliers with disabilities experience, right? So the more information we can glean from those suppliers directly, yeah. the better we can direct these systemic reviews, because if there's a particular practice within a department or agency or multiple departments and agencies that's affecting suppliers with disabilities, we need to know that so we can launch a review and make sure that we make recommendations to uh, eradicate that practice or change that practice and modify it in a way that helps everyone, right? So that's a big thing. And so that's why when I said I'm soliciting input, that's what we do with that input. We actually try to action it. Um, and then the last piece of our legislative mandate that I'll talk about is our ADR services. And so that's Anytime you win a federal contract and you're in the delivery phase of that contract, if you experience a dispute with the federal government, you can always come to our office and we offer mediation services free of charge. And again, you know, most people don't want to engage in litigation. So as a result, you know, they kind of avoid altogether the dispute. And so they kind of lump whatever issues they're having, but they have a negative perception of their involvement with the contract. I would strongly encourage you to contact our office. Again, these are free of charge services. Typically the mediation session lasts a day and we have really high success rates. So pre-COVID when we were doing everything in person, the success rate was over 90%. So every time a supplier came to us, the department agreed to participate. Over 90% of the time we were able to find a successful resolution to the issue. After COVID, we kind of had to figure out how to navigate the online space with mediation. Um, so mediation is still effective online, but it's not as effective, right? You can't kind of appreciate some of those tactile things that you need, like body language and other components, but it was still over 75% uh, success rate. So again, for all those suppliers who are actively participating in federal procurement, winning contracts, um, you know, you're likely going to have disputes at some point um, in the process, you know, please contact our office. Even if it doesn't say you have the right to do so in the contract, you do. And we're working really diligently to make sure that that language does appear in federal contracts, just so that you are acutely aware. But again, part of what I said is people really don't know our office exists. So we just need to continually remind people, you know, we do exist. These are the types of services that we can provide to you. 
So this isn't your first term uh, as procurement ombudsman. You're you're now in your second. And so are there things that you're going to do differently this time around or something that you've learned that compared to the first term? Yeah, so also I think that's a, a question I was kind of asking myself as I reached the end of the term, right, is is there something that I really need to accomplish in a second term? And I said, of course there is. Um, so we definitely made a lot of progress in the five years, but we need to continue to push on those same priorities. So I know that your organization has three pillars. We have five. Um, and so those five pillars, I would suggest, you know, are the starting point. And so one of the big things I talk about is accountability, right? And I fear that if we go away, you know, some of that accountability for other actors around the federal government is lessened, right? Because we're able to hold people accountable through some of these reviews. Um, so it's following through on kind of the pillars that we've already established. And then it's also looking at what other work remains to be done. And so I think what we did do a great job of is creating baseline data. And I have to give a shout out to my own office because the people who work within the office are extremely passionate, you know, and care deeply. And I think as an ombuds office, it's one of the, the main things we look for in terms of the type of people we employ is you have to care about people, right? And the people that work at the procurement ombudsman's office really care. Um, and so what they want to do is they want to make sure that the work that has been done, you know, continues in terms of specific areas we've identified that need improvement and, you know, that those improvements are actually happening. So we just completed our five-year systemic reviews and the next stage of that process is doing follow-ups to make sure all of the recommendations we made in those systemic reviews are actually implemented. Because if we just walked away now, you know, we mm. wouldn't know if the, the process has changed for the better or not. So it's really important that we do follow up on that work. And then there's other areas that I think for those who work in procurement that I think we know matter a lot. So vendor performance management. So that's in the contract administration phase. You know, how can you ensure that bad contractors, you know, don't necessarily continue to get work? And I know that's a frustration on the federal government buyer side, right? And so what type of framework is going to be put in place to ensure that those vendors are held accountable when the work isn't performed in accordance with the specifications? And on the other side, you know, what type of incentives are there for suppliers to do great work when they perform, right? And so that's something that I think it, it has been missing and is, is starting to kind of bubble up to the surface. And I, I sincerely hope in the next five years that we'll see a full vendor performance management framework that's stood up. Um, you heard me talk about ADR passionately. It's something I think, you know, I really care deeply about. I think there's a lot of work uh, that remains to be done in terms of resolving disputes without litigation. So using mediation, um, I think that's something that we really need to focus on. And lastly, and most importantly for your audience, certainly is it a reimagined role in supplier diversity. So we've been involved for five years um, and we don't wanna walk away from this. We wanna figure out how we can continue to best serve uh, diverse suppliers. And so, you know, part of these conversations is again, seeking your inputs as well as listeners, helping us identify where else we should be looking, talking about, you know, the practical barriers you're experiencing and even some of the theoretical barriers that might be preventing you from even being interested. Because if, if we don't address those, then I fear, you know, we might be having similar conversations in a year's time. So I guess it's uh, five years ago or so that I first met you uh, at the first um, federal government's diversifying the federal supply chain summit. 
And I have to say that rolls off the tongue now, but it didn't for the first year. I was always like, what is that event called again? I have to look up my notes. Um, why, did, why, did the, uh, why did you decide to run this event? Maybe you yeah, can describe it a little bit as well. That would be helpful. Yeah, for sure. And so I think, again, where we are now, you have to appreciate that it's been a pretty significant evolution from where we were back in kind of the tail end of 2018. There weren't a lot of people talking about diversifying the federal supply chain, um, but it was in the minister's mandate letter. So right around that time, minister's mandates letters became transparent. And so it was information that we gleaned from the mandate letter that identified this is something that uh, the prime minister has tasked the minister specifically to do. So we kind of looked at it as an issue of fairness, right? And so we weren't sure how significant an issue this was. And so the first question we asked is, you know, what does the data demonstrate before kind of deciding that this was a fairness issue? And so when we went to ask, you know, the parties that we thought would hold the data sets, um, we were kind of surprised to learn that really data didn't exist in this area, right? Or, or meaningful data didn't exist in the area. And so it kind of left us in a bit of an awkward position, right? Because we didn't know whether the data was good, bad, or otherwise. And so, you know, we thought, do we wait until we see data or do we act, right? And so it was a situation where we acted. And as part of that action, you know, it was a call for data. Because again, and I know this is something that your organization believes in as well, but without the data, it's really difficult to know if things are getting better or getting worse or staying the same, right? And so a lot of the work we did in the early days was saying, you know, this is why data matters so much. It's not just talking about data, it's really understanding what is underpinning that data, right? And so the first iteration, I have to admit, you know, we didn't know exactly what we wanted to accomplish, but we knew we wanted to raise awareness because we knew that there weren't enough people talking about this across the federal government. And those who were talking about it didn't really have policy grounding, right? And so it's always dangerous if you're a government employee to talk in areas where there's no policy framework to tell you what, you know, good and bad looks like. And so no one was willing to kind of stand on that ledge and say anything. Uh, but we at least brought the people together, right? And so it was suppliers, buyers, uh, industry councils such as yourself. And we really appreciated your support, you know, from the early days, because like you said, you didn't really know what to make of this. You didn't know if it was going to be worth your while. And our challenge was making it worth your while, right? Understanding that you want to come to a room of diverse suppliers, but also government buyers to be able to have them appreciate your perspective, understand what incentivizes your work. Um, so I think, you know, we were pleasantly surprised by how successful the first one was. And again, success is an awkward word in this space, right? Because success ultimately should mean we've diversified the federal supply chain, right? By winning federal government contracts. And certainly we had no methodology of tracking that after the first uh, event, but we knew that we were on to something and it just encouraged us to keep going. And so that's really kind of what drove us to the second one. And so we decided, you know, we'd done this in Ottawa. And as a result of doing it in Ottawa, we had a really good representation from federal government buyers. But we felt like we weren't scratching uh, enough of the surface from the actual supplier community. So we wanted to go 
to a larger urban center to say, you know, where can we get more suppliers who will be interested in this topic? So we took the second one to Toronto. And so, again, we encouraged many government buyers to come listen so that they would hear those perspectives firsthand. And that's that's really important, right, is that I know that you can't create a data set from individual examples. But if you can't hear those individual examples, the issue will never resonate. And again, year over year, things were changing. And so you heard me use the word accountability. And I think this is something I say every year at the summit, which is if I can give the exact same speech I give this year, the next year, then something is horribly wrong, right? Because that means no progress has been made. And so, you know, there was immediately a call for, you know, policy frameworks to be put in place to give people more of kind of uh, a rationale on how they can go about doing this work on the government side. And then suppliers equally were looking for information. You know, many of them weren't even aware of the opportunity. So it's like, where can you get this information? And those that did have the information might've felt like it was too cumbersome or too difficult to even engage. And so they just kind of weren't particularly interested. So my role is not to necessarily drum up support uh, for federal procurement specifically, but it is to demystify, you know, the process. And the more suppliers we have uh, in the supply chain who are diverse in nature, you know, the more rich the supply chain becomes. And I think that, again, goes to benefiting everyone. So I I remember after the first event in Ottawa, and it makes me giggle every time, and I I was so impressed with how, how people were interested in improving this, but uh, someone from your office came up and said, what do you think of the event? And how do you like the level of accessibility? And so I said, do you really want my answer? And they said, yes. So I gave them the answer. And there definitely were some areas of concern from an accessibility perspective. Uh, and and instead of getting a kind of, kind of like a sort of sound, it was, okay, here's my information, reach out to me from now on, we want to make this accessible. And so for me, I was really impressed with that because that's not always the response you get. Uh, and I love how, you know, you've included IWSCC to help ensure that we're as accessible as we can be uh, with these events. So will there be one in 2024? Yeah, so that's a great question. I just want to go back to something you said, because I don't want to kind of diminish what you just said. You really played such a significant role in something that, you know, we wanted to learn, but we didn't necessarily have all of the right people to ask, you know, in terms of how to get help, how to understand, you know, where we've gone wrong. And so you took the time and effort to look at, you know, all aspects of the program and say, here are things, you know, and, and it were things like the carpet, you know, the the table linens, you know, how we projected information. And all of that, you know, was incredibly useful. And it, it forced us to think differently. And I think, again, I'm glad you said you saw improvements in subsequent years, because again, if we're not listening, we're not doing our jobs. Um, and that's, again, a lasting impact of what we did in Toronto was that the venue that we selected we actually caused them to make improvements to the venue that were long-standing, well beyond our event, yeah. right? And again, you know, those are things that you know might not seem significant to some, but they are significant, right? So I'm, I'm glad you raised that. So thank you. I, I've been back in that same venue, and I look at those automated door operators, and I'm like, yep, that was us. We did that. So it's, it's it makes me proud, actually. So I'm, yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate that. So 2024. Well, and sometimes it's things like, you know, visiting the bathroom, you know, it's something that you typically don't do when you're selecting a venue. Mm-hmm. 
but we w- walked into the bathroom and made them reconfigure, you know, the That's stalls right. and said, you, yeah. you're just, you're not doing enough uh, to say that you're an accessible location, right? And given what we were doing in terms of our event, we thought we can't hold the event at a location that doesn't appreciate the significance of these things. Yes, very good point. That's right. Yeah. So 2024, um, what we're trying to do is we have to reimagine what our role is. And so there's another organization called Procurement Assistance Canada, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, So they very much have taken on a role of education and information, and they even do one-on-one coaching. And I think they're doing a really effective job. Uh, So what we're trying not to do is, you know, create competing events within the federal government where people are not sure whose respective role is what. So we totally respect the fact that they've stepped up in this space. And so we're trying to reimagine what our role can be to make it even more kind of useful to suppliers and buyers. And so we're probably not going to hold one large event, but what we're going to hold is many smaller events um, and we're going to do relationship building. And I know you do matchmaking and it's kind of similar to the matchmaking idea. It's touching more communities um, in person, but on a smaller scale. So this won't be one large event, but several smaller events. And then hopefully the, the best news is now that there's starting to be a policy framework, we now have something that we can review, right? So now this brings it back into our legislative mandate, whereas before we didn't have those authorities in our legislative mandate, but we can start looking at some systemic issues because there are rules in place. And so those rules can now be tested. So if departments and agencies aren't following those rules, we can now step in formally. So I think those are those are big strides kind of in, in the evolution of diversifying the federal supply chain. That's that's really great, actually. I'm looking forward to what you guys come up with because we do work quite well with PAC and we enjoy our relationship with them and, and like the work that they're doing. In fact, I have a podcast scheduled with them coming up, I think, in October yeah. or November. Um, so, yeah, I'm really interested and, and certainly count on us for support from the accessibility perspective, uh, as always. So a lot of uh, veteran and disabled-owned businesses tend to be smaller businesses. And so I'm interested to know what hurdles that you run across when uh, that small businesses encounter when they're trying to do business or doing business with the federal government. Yeah, absolutely. So we were created predominantly to help small and medium-sized business. And so those are the type of stakeholders that interact with our office the most. And what they tell us often is they lack information necessary to, to participate in the process. When they do participate in the process, they find it, it's not clear and it's overly complex. Um, As someone who's worked in the federal procurement space for quite some time, I have to say, uh, you know, I too, when I read the documentation, find it difficult to understand. So when you take that perspective and say, okay, someone who's inside on the process, even from a legal perspective, you know, I'm not even really sure what they're asking for. So that puts suppliers at a real disadvantage. And we're working actively, you know, to make sure that we're continually trying to simplify the process because that's a huge bar for people. And pretending like it's not uh, complicated, I think also, you know, discourages people because if someone is telling you it's difficult to comply with uh, all of the rules and regulations that exist in federal procurement and just saying it's not that bad. It's not really respecting what they're saying in terms of their participation. 
It's also very different from private sector. So if you're used to doing private sector uh, sales, you know, engaging in federal government procurement feels very different. And it's something that you have to dedicate resources to. And that's something that typically small, medium sized businesses don't have, which is additional resources to pursue new business opportunities. So typically they don't. Um, but again, when we look at, you know, the composition of the marketplace in Canada, we see that, you know, 98% of businesses are small and medium sized businesses. So if the federal government doesn't do more to encourage participation from that significant portion of, of, of Canadian businesses, um, then again, we're, we're doing a disservice to the federal government. And really missing out. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Because, yeah, I always I always talk about that, all of those barriers that are in place are precluding the purchasers from getting the best quality suppliers to do the work. It's the ones that are done the work already, so they're incumbent, or they've, you know, they've reached a financial uh, point where they can dedicate those resources. So you're, you're just missing out on so much innovation that it tends to come with small business. Yeah, absolutely. When you, when you were working uh, in Australia and in the States, and I know both of those countries have supplier diversity programs, did you run across supplier diversity in those roles? So I did, but I wouldn't have described it as supplier diversity. And so at the time, you know, I was aware of set aside programs in the United States. And the question was whether Australian companies could qualify for these set aside programs in the United States. But it was more when I returned to Canada uh, and I was learning about, um, you know, the PSIB, so the procurement strategy for Indigenous business being the only set aside program that exists in Canadian federal government, you know, why there weren't more set aside programs akin to what they had in the United States. So that was one of the questions that I actually had. And we we did uh, a knowledge deepening and sharing piece. So this is what we do in terms of areas that we think we should explore and share information on across the procurement community. We've done quite a bit of work in social procurement in general, but we did a follow-on piece on set-aside programs, and we did look at multiple jurisdictions, including the United States, including Australia, including the European Union. And what we found was, you know, there's definitely opportunities to emulate aspects of what's happened in the United States. Um, Depending on who you talk to within the federal government, you know, there's certainly nuances to how easy it is to create these set-aside programs. But these are programs that in the United States have existed for a long time. And it's something that I think at the federal government level at least needs to be considered seriously. And I know that your council is a big part of, you know, the advocacy for consideration of these types of programs within the federal government. So for those listening and watching who don't really understand, describe or explain what a set aside is. Exactly. So a set aside really means you're taking a procurement and you're setting it aside for a specific group of people. So, for example, um, it could be women owned business. And so if it meets certain parameters in the United States, it might be uh, a contract less than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. It's a mandatory set aside, meaning that it is set aside in all instances and a certain percentage of that work has to be delivered by women owned businesses. And sometimes it can be sole sourced or directed to a specific supplier. In other instances, it's competed. And so it's competed amongst that community of people. And so it gives an opportunity to create an assurance that the supply chain will be met with 
people from that community, right? So it's a wonderful thing to say you want a, a more diverse federal supply chain. But if you don't have proactive programs in place to ensure that happens, then again, I fear that we're entering that space of it's it's a talking point that we'll repeat on a yearly basis, but we won't see uh, significant changes. Whereas with set aside programs, you now have targets. And so, for for example, in the in the PSIB program that I talked about, the procurement strategy for Indigenous business, now there's a five percent uh, requirement for all federal departments and agencies to meet. And so, it's there's a possibility to create similar programs for other underrepresented groups. So. I know that wasn't in a nutshell because when you talk for three minutes, it's difficult to say it's in a nutshell, but hopefully it provide a little bit more information. Thank you. Yes. So uh, as an alumnus of Carleton University and, and you've taught there as well, <clears throat> and I should say IWSCC, we've had the pleasure of um, collaborating with uh, Carleton's Accessibility Institute uh, on some research. And then also uh, we are on the governing council for the Canadian Accessibility Network, which uh, Carleton is very closely involved in. Um, when you look back at your time as a student and then as an instructor, do you sort of have a vision for where procurement is heading? And I know you've kind of answered this already, but where procurement is heading, how it's changed over the years, maybe we can nutshell that one. Yeah, so again, it's an interesting question. I'll try to answer it as briefly as possible, but I think it's really changed significantly. So when I was a student, and even when I was teaching at Carleton, uh, what we were talking about was globalization. And so everyone was talking about global supply chains, uh, free trade agreements, uh, multilateral agreements, uh, dealing with procurement. And then kind of around the time of COVID, everything changed. And we were looking at much more of a protectionist environment, nationalistic supply chains. And there's impacts, right? So you can't shift immediately from a truly globalized perspective when it comes to procurement to a much more domestically centered one. And I think where we are now kind of post-COVID is that we're trying to rebalance. Where do we sit between this globalized vision of procurement that we had perhaps a decade ago and the protectionist environment that we're just coming out of? And so, you know, we're trying to find our landing spot. And then simultaneously within Canada specifically, I would say we're seeing significant changes. I mean, the fact that we have, you know, a social procurement policy is a significant change. There was a policy called the Treasury Board Contracting Policy that had been in place for many decades. So that has been sunsetted out over the last few years. And so we have a new framework that guides procurement. So these are, again, monumental shifts, you know, in how we go about thinking about procurement. But the, the last thing I'll say is the power of procurement, right? I think oftentimes procurement was maligned as being, you know, just the acquisition of goods and services, and it was too lengthy, too cumbersome, and you never got what you wanted. And I think that philosophy has greatly changed as a result of COVID. People really appreciate, you know, the significance of procurement and are talking about it differently. So I'm trying to talk about the power of procurement to have people realize, yes, it's acquiring goods and services, but the amount of significant social change that can be impacted by making these acquisitions in a strategic way is also something that I think we're now coming to grips with in that there is a power in that spend. And so it's not 
not just acquiring that good or service, but it's how you acquire it. You know, what are the impacts of that acquisition? And again, for the small, medium-sized business community, this should really resonate, right? Because you should be deriving a benefit from that government spend. Well, I often have opportunity to speak with procurement professionals, more so in the private sector, um, and and I will share with them, you know, it, when they make the choice to spend their dollars with a diverse-owned business, with a veteran uh, or someone with a disability, specifically, of course, that's that's our focus as a with IWSCC. When when those people make the choice to to award a contract. We know that in both of those communities, as those companies gain revenue, um, they do more business with disabled suppliers, with veteran suppliers. They hire more people within the disability and the veteran community. So I always talk about that one decision is creating this economic snowball that you have no idea where it's going to get to. And with IWSCC, along with stigma reduction being one of our our big uh, mandates um, and goals, is also helping uh, both veteran and, and the disability community business owners uh, create some intergenerational wealth because typically they have not been included in the supply chain. And so there has been no ability to do that, to hand down a successful business, to hand down the things that they were able to purchase to family members as a result of owning a successful business. So <clears throat> I think it's really important for people to consider the person behind the company the people behind the company and and how you know i don't want to say taking a chance because working with these companies can be highly beneficial but but awarding those contracts to a smaller organization really helps canada out on on an economic level that i, I think is really hard to measure um i'll get off my soapbox because you know i could be on there all day but uh but it is really important and i think it's important for people to really pay attention to and think about and the one thing I'll jump on that you just said is also um, sometimes, you know, there's this perception that receiving the goods at the lowest price is ultimately success. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's what competition tends to breed is the lowest price solution. Uh, but particularly for suppliers who are disabled, you know, that creates a barrier that I don't think most people appreciate because oftentimes suppliers who have disabilities need to incur costs that other suppliers don't necessarily have to incur. So they're left with a choice, right? Either not to participate or perhaps have lower margins than other suppliers just to get in the supply chain. And then the second aspect is what you talked about is, you know, how do you open the door for others, right? And so another barrier that I think is unique uh, to suppliers with disabilities is, you know, these mandatory requirements with experience, significant government experience as a prerequisite to get in the door. So it's, if you don't have the door open for you by others, you know, how are you going to get that experience? So everyone complains about it, but I think there's a uniqueness to that requirement and how it creates a barrier because, Oftentimes, suppliers with disabilities aren't subcontractors in existing supply chains. So how do they glean that experience? So when that first, you know, supplier with a disability wins that contract, you know, please look backward and pull other people through to give them that experience so that this barrier is a little less real each time, right? So what's next for your office? What's next for you? I know you've talked a little bit about it, but I'm thinking too, and maybe this is uh, a little too far ahead of you, but but what's next for you after this five years is up? 
So what's next for the office? So I talked about the five yeah. pillars. Hopefully those pillars guide the office uh, for the five years and beyond. And so diversity is now one of our pillars. And so that was one of my kind of big achievements is that I wanted to make sure that this pillar lasted well beyond my tenure and so that it kind of guides the organization. We're also kind of at a pivotal time um, within the organization. So we have a really ambitious agenda in all of the things we'd like to continue to accomplish. Uh, but we know we can't do that without additional kind of funding because we need people to accomplish these goals. So we have put forward financial asks uh, both last year and this year. We understand the fiscal climate at the federal level right now is not conducive uh, to funding, but we really want to implore uh, the federal government to see the importance of the work that we're doing so that we can continue to kind of evolve in many of these important areas and make sure you know that we are serving the needs of all of our stakeholders so on a on an office standpoint you know i think that's really important for us to continue to take the steps necessary to meet the demands of our stakeholders and on the personal side, I have to admit, if I look beyond that five years, then I'm probably doing a disservice to my to my role now. So I am laser focused on uh, delivering as much as I can uh, within this next five year period. That being said, longer term, obviously, uh, I do dream big. Uh, so hopefully, you know, I can continue to help people uh, solve problems. So. Maybe you'll hear from me again in a different capacity in the future, but I can certainly say that uh, in the short term, I'm laser focused on uh, my role as the procurement ombud. Well, that's great to hear that. And and you've already done so many great things for the office. So another five years, I, I can't wait to see all, all, all of what you get up to and, and how it ends up benefiting our community and, and others that, uh, that are diverse. So thank you so much for, for being here today and for taking the time. I know you're a busy person, but uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And I think it's going to be super educational for all of our watchers and listeners. So we really appreciate you sharing your time with us. Yeah, no, I appreciate uh, you and your organization as well for all the time you've dedicated to help us uh, promote the message to the community that you serve. And so we sincerely hope that we do hear uh, directly from suppliers with disabilities and veteran-owned suppliers um, who are looking to do business with the federal government. So thank you. And thank you everyone for joining us today. Uh, for more information about supplier diversity and IWSCC, you can go to www.iwscc.ca. Thank you again to RBC for your sponsorship of our ASL services that are provided by Maple Communication. Thank you to Pod Supply for producing our podcast every time. And uh, thank you again for watching, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.